by this time, you should be able to thump your Bible, and it should spring open to the book of Acts, <laughs> right? Some of you are thinking, what are we going to say when we get over to 17, 18, and 19 chapters and all the way out to 28? Well, we'll just see how that goes, amen? Our scripture reading, Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 37. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So that so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As I stand before you today, one of the great passions of my life is that we have a healthy, growing church at First Baptist Ozark. And I hope that's your passion. Since this is my passion, I must preach and teach the Word of God. If you cut away the hobbies and other things on the periphery of my life ministerially and get it, whittle it down to just one thing that I'm called to do as your pastor and according to the Word of God, it is that I would teach you and preach to you God's holy word. It is through the word of God and the word of God alone that we can experience health and the vitality that this church needs, that any church body needs. So my passion is for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm not talking about numerical numbers necessarily. That's a great thing, isn't it? To grow numerically. But I'm talking about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be a healthy church that is vibrant and that manifests the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in this community. And we can't stop there all over the world. That's what our desire is. So as Peter preached that day, here's the obvious thing, which is the title of the sermon. The Holy Spirit of God was present and the Holy Spirit of God was operative through the preached word. We cannot... And must not miss that. The Holy Spirit is working and He is present. But He is operative through the preached Word. There is something else going on when the 3,000 are converted, as you saw. 3,000 souls added to the church. Again, as we study the book of Acts, it is incumbent upon you to keep one eye on Acts and one eye on the Old Testament. Right? 
Because what has he done for us? What has Peter preached? Well, you didn't have the New Testament then, right? When he was preaching, it hasn't been written, okay? And so the fact of the matter is, especially the Gospels, I mean, Paul had started some writing. Well, Paul will begin writings before Acts is over. But the fact is, they didn't have the New Testament. So what is he preaching to them? He is preaching the Old Testament. Remember, Joel 2, Psalm 68, and Psalm 110, or Psalm 16 at this point, Psalm 110. He's preaching the Word. And remember, Hezekiah's reign, during it, there was a prophecy that the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will take root downward again and bear much fruit, not only at Mount Zion, but all over the world. This is reiterated in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 12, that the remnant would return. Now, not everyone responded positively that day. Note verse 37. We saw it just briefly last week. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And this is the conviction part. There are other times you're going to see that they were cut to the heart, but it was in a negative sense because they were gnashing their teeth and ready to kill uh, Peter and the apostles. But in this sense... Isaiah 28, 11 through 14, if you go back and read that, don't have time to read it now. God said, when that day comes and I pour out my spirit, that others will, hear, others will be in attendance but will not be able to hear the word when it's preached. They won't receive it. But of course, others did receive it. And the application of Peter's sermon was direct and unambiguous, and it pointed directly to who? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. We talked about that. This is in your face preaching, isn't it? He's speaking to the very crowd that crucified the Lord of glory. And note the text. It says that they were cut to the heart. They were cut, and the reference of where they were cut was where? To the heart. Now get this. Joel was preached. Psalm uh, 16. Psalm 110. And God used... The Spirit of God operating through the Word of God to convict the heart. Folks, there is no genuine conviction apart from the Word of God. Y'all listening? The Spirit of God is working and He is operative through the preached Word. It penetrated their affections. The word sharp means to cut deeply. It means to be stabbed. It means to feel a sharp pain connected to anxiety and remorse. And we saw that this last week, it wasn't just jail sorrow, it was authentic guilt that was given by authentic conviction through the authentic word being preached to them, that's what's taking place. Has the weight of your sin ever hit you that way? Where you were pierced, penetrated, cut, stabbed through with anxiety and remorse over your sin? Now think about this for a moment. These are the very ones who crucified the Lord of glory. And they're convicted. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is active and sharper. And alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And they had fallen on the sword. And notice their response. What shall we do? Now what if I preached a sermon in this church or in the middle of it. And someone leaped to their feet, leapt to their feet and said, What do I need to do? What would we say? We'd be like, who is that? What's up with him or her, right? But that's kind of what this interruption was like. Peter was preaching and then this interruption, what do we need to do? 
And it'd be great if a lost person were to interrupt this service and say, under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, operative through the Word of God, what shall we do? Well, folks, they were cast into the valley of decision. And it's only the Word of God that can cast your life and your soul into the valley of decision. Where your mind comes in contact with the Word, there's a collision course going on, and you must respond and receive the Word and and repent. You feel the weight of the operative, you feel the weight of the Spirit of God on your life, and it's operative through truth, right? It's the truth of the Word of God that is penetrating your life. Jesus and His apostles answer questions a lot different than we do, don't they? When they ask Peter what to do, what does Peter say? Repent. Now, we say a lot of things today. God has a plan for your life. Fill out a card, drop it in the offering plate. We say a lot of things, but notice Peter's response. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you. If someone is under conviction and they hear the truth of the Word of God, the obvious call, according to what Jesus said at the end of Luke's Gospel, you are to preach repentance to the nations. Folks, there is no genuine salvation without repentance. And repentance is predicated with a change of mind, but we can't stop there. It's more than that. It's it's predicated with a change of mind where you go from unbelief to belief But it will issue forth in you turning away from sin and putting all your belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His work and His ways. That's what repentance is. It's a change of direction in life. And again, repentance is also the flip side of faith. All true faith is repentance faith. And all true repentance is believing repentance. Biblically speaking. So when he says baptize each one of you, some people have read this to think that baptism saves you. Repent and be baptized. I asked a Church of Christ person this one day, I said, so do you believe that baptism is meritorious for salvation? He said, yes, it's conditional on baptism because the Bible says repent and be baptized. Well, I want to remind you that baptism here is a symbol of a reality which carried a whole lot more weight back then. So Peter points to the symbol. It's the ritual of baptism that's put in the place of the reality. Because a little later it says, repent and turn to the Lord and He will blot out your sins. And baptism's not even mentioned. So you need to be really careful that you form a doctrine on one verse when uh, many, many verses in the book of Acts don't even mention baptism at all. We know that baptism by water does not save you. It is, it is a metonym. It is a symbol put in the place of a reality. And so, in other words, trust Jesus as Lord, then confess your loyalty to Him through baptismal waters. Uh, it's a good place for me to stop and say, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord and you've never followed in believer's baptism, you should do so. And the promise of forgiveness according to this text and the Spirit of God being given to, give to you is not only a promise to the ones who have received, but those who are far off and receive Him. They'll also be given the Holy Spirit of God. And here's the qualifier. Note this. As many as the Lord our God calls to Himself. You know, should we have confidence today in evangelism? I mean, Peter stood that day and he proclaimed the gospel. It was, he was doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The, the Word of God was operative in the church. And you know what Peter had confidence in? That the Lord God would call his people to himself. Folks, we serve the same God today. We have the same Holy Spirit, and we have the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we ought to expect conversions. Spurgeon said at the end of his life that he could not remember a single Lord's day when someone wasn't converted. 
Now, I know he preached to a lot more people. I know that's true, huge congregation, but still, just think about that. Spurgeon used to say to his students over and over again, where the gospel abounds, conversions will abound. And the gospel will go forth in the power of the Spirit of God, and God will accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. I didn't make that up. Y'all see it? Whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Folks, salvation is of the Lord. He accomplishes it. He changes lives. I can have boldness proclaiming the gospel from this pulpit that God is going to save sinners. But you can have the same boldness when you walk to your neighbor's door and knock on it. You've got boldness in your heart and confidence that the Lord our God will call his people unto himself. Now, notice verse 40. Be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. Does that strike y'all as kind of weird? Uh, crooked and perverse generation. I mean, ooh, that's a long time ago. You're talking about 31, 32, 33 A.D., 35, something like that. You're thinking, perverse generation? Now, we've got the Internet. Talk about perversion, right? We've got that bad music that we listen to. So what qualifies sexual immorality, all those things? that were rampant in that day, just like it is today. But what, what, would, what would bring Peter to say this is a crooked and perverse generation? I want you to know that when any civilization rejects the revelation of our God concerning his son, that's a perverse generation. That's the qualifier. Okay, verse, 30, verse 41. We have the response and growth of the early church. And hear this, please. The word they received means they embraced the word into their life. The word of God came into their life. They favorably received, thus saith the Lord. So they expressed that faith. They received the word. They trusted Christ. They repented, turned to him, and they followed in believers' baptism. Note this. 3,000 souls were added to the church. In one day, it went from 120 on record. There were more disciples. But 120 to 3,120. Talk about an administrative nightmare. Can y'all see Don running around <laughs> with 3,000 people? I mean, he'd just be everywhere. And how could Chris Thixton meet all of them? No, that would be an impossibility. And Blake would try, hey, you need to work with youth, right? And Chuck, you need to be in Sunday school. I mean, we'd just be running everywhere, right? 3,000, what an administrative nightmare to go from a church with 120 to 3,120 just like that. Now think about this. 26 times its original size in one sermon. Now think about this for a moment. They came to Christ against the backdrop of religious leaders. I've told you before, in the Bible, most people were saved out of religion. They were extremely religious, but they were lost at the ball in high grass. They didn't know the Lord, okay? They were very religious, but they were lost. And so, think about this. These were 3,000 conversions wherein they knew it was going to cost them everything to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, the people didn't come down and sign a fire insurance card. It was, the gospel was not presented that way. Get out of hell free card. It, nothing was signed that day. They're, these people were willing to let goods and kindreds go, their mortal life also. This is how serious it is. When they trusted Jesus, they had to know they would be cut off from families, from culture, and their people. Now very quickly, uh, the sermon's not over. I want to breeze through a couple of the working principles in the early church, 42 through 47. Okay, here's the first one. 
by the word of God penetrating them, then coming to Christ, receiving the word, this is what the church looked like. Is there any reason why we should not look like this? Any reason? Okay, I told you the, Acts is, uh, the early church is not a perfect church. In some ways, we know a whole lot more than they knew. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, it is an awesome model. And where it's prescriptive to us, we're going to prescribe to it. If it's describing something, we're going to check it with spiritual ears and see if it's something that is supposed to be normative for the New Testament church. But all of a sudden, these people changed. Is it, is it safe to say that when you meet Jesus, you ought to be different? And here's the difference. Note what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of the bread. Here's the first thing. Be enthusiastically committed to the life of the church. Is it safe to say that once Jesus saved them, their attitude about coming together changed? Are y'all awake? Right? Be enthusiastically committed to the life of the church. And this is what we're seeing here. Where do I get that from? I get it from the word devoted. That word means to be obstinately persistent. To adhere to something firmly. In the New Testament, it means to attach yourself to something firmly. It means to be busily engaged in a particular activity. It means to hold fast to something and spend a lot of time doing it. And that word has two aspects to it. If you're going to be devoted, it has two aspects. It has the heart attitude, well, that's, and it has the conduct element to it. Heart and conduct. The heart element is captured with the word devoted or attached. And the conduct element of the word is captured with the words such as engaged and persistent and steadfast. I like the way the NLT, New Living Translation, translates it. It says, they join with other believers and devoted themselves. So it's heart and it's action. In modern vernacular, we would say, they were sold out. They were on fire. And forgive me for using a preposition at the end of a sentence, which is wrong, but this was where it was at. Right? You know, we hear things like, whoo, that's where it's happening. Well, the church was where everything was happening. And so they were simply disciples of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a novel idea? When they trusted Christ, they followed him, and they were enthusiastically committed to the life of the church. The church was the center of their lives because Jesus was there and in all of them. And so there's an unmistakable pattern that's developing in the book of Acts. They responded with complete enthusiastic commitment to the life of the church. The things of earth had grown strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what's going on in the lives of these people. What an amazing contrast between then and today. Let's think about that for a moment. For so many today, the church is not something to get all that excited about. As a matter of fact, you really don't have to be that committed to the church, do you? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really even have to be a priority. It can just be a somewhat of a responsibility along with all the other priorities and responsibilities. Preacher, we're just so busy today. Many of us go out of tradition, don't we? My mama went and my daddy went, and they'd beat the fire out of me if I didn't go. So today, I still go out of tradition. Granddad went, grandma went. My granddaddy would roll over in the grave if I didn't attend church on Sunday morning, right? Let's be honest. For many in our day, even churchgoers, there's not anything remotely close to enthusiastic commitment. What's happened, folks? 
That's not true across the board, but let's do a little spiritual inventory, a little evaluation of our own hearts. Growth experts tell us to, you got to make sure, preachers, that you guard everybody's time. People want to come in and get out. They want to start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. Right? If the heart, if, you know, if absence makes the heart grow fonder, then some of you must really love church. Amen, right? I don't, I don't buy the philosophy that this is the busiest people have ever been. Did you know that people worked in Middle Eastern customs from daylight to dark? Hello. I, I don't buy that we are the busiest. As a matter of fact, you've got the same 24-hour day that they had back then for 24 hours. Right? It's still the issue of time. The problem is simple. We are idolaters. And this grieves my heart to tell you this, but we are idolaters to time. I don't hear one amen. Go ahead and say you're welcome. Because we are. I am and so are you. We're idolaters. And we're idolaters to time. I submit to you that the reason the American church is so anemic and so insipid is because in large part we're enthusiastic about everything else in the world except the church. God help us. You know where Jesus said he was going to manifest his glory? In the church. And not this building either. It's not this building. It's in the temple that's not made by hands. It's in you. But you say, well, see, I can do that on the golf course. I'm all by myself. I'm the temple. No. You can't belong to Jesus without belonging to people. It's clear from the Bible. Absolutely. 100% clear. So, the church... Is it just part of our routine so, so we can just get here? Don't, please don't miss this in the book of Acts. There was a throbbing, pulsating, enthusiastic commitment that gripped the people once they came to know Jesus. I belong to Jesus, and I belong to people. So let's be a church that's enthusiastically committed to the life of the church. How'd y'all do on the first one? Did y'all pass? Some of you are saying, hmm. Can we do a retake? Uh, can I do the pop quiz tomorrow? Not today. Here's the second thing. Be persistently committed to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Enthusiastically committed to the life of the church. But devoted, persistently committed to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Now notice what the text says. It says they were devoted. Devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and then it says, and the fellowship. Now, what is teaching? Well, at least three modes. It references what is taught, the content. Folks, doctrine's important. What we believe is important. What the Bible teaches is important. And everybody can't be right. Are y'all listening? You can't interpret the Scripture and say, well, they can have their interpretation and we can have ours. No, that's not true. You know, it's, this is not opinions. This is what the Word of God teaches in its content. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And it meant, some, it meant something when it was written. So the job is to find out with the Scripture what it says. So folks, I want to remind you that doctrine is important. That's why we're having a new members class to help us assimilate and think about what the Word of God teaches. And here's the deal. They were excited about truth. Isn't that interesting? The Word of God was awesome. When they heard teaching on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 
They were excited about that. They were excited about the meaning of the Old Testament. For a lot of people, they think, ooh, that's just antiquated Old Testament stuff. Mean God in the Old Testament, nice God in the New Testament, right? That's the way a lot of people perceive that. That's the wrong understanding. So what is taught is vitally important when it comes to apostles' teaching. The second function is the medium of the truth, which was teaching, proclamation, teaching of the Word. There was a full commitment to verbal, authoritative preaching and teaching of the Word. In Acts 20, 25-32, Paul announces to the elders the centrality of the spoken, spoken Word of God. Paul, you'll find out, is a preaching machine. He's going to preach everywhere he possibly can go. And even when he's under house arrest, when Acts ends, he's chained in a place uh, in the school of Tyrannius. And he's in jail and he's teaching day and night. He never quit teaching the Word. When you get to Acts 6, we're going to find out the major reason for even starting the function of deacon body is to protect the preaching of the Word. So in other words, if a deacon is not committed to the pastor preaching, thus saith the Lord, he doesn't need to be a deacon. The reason you have a deacon body is so they can support the ministry of the Word of God. Everything falls under the the preaching and teaching of the Word, whether it's Sunday school or this pulpit. It's preaching the Word. So, it was because they were committed why, why do you see Peter preaching and Paul preaching and Stephen preaching? 19 sermons in the book of Acts. Why? Because God is working through his spirit and he's operative through the word of God. Look, notice this in Luke, uh, excuse me, in chapter 19, real quickly. Chapter 19, verse 18 of the book of Acts. I said Luke, but it is Luke saying this or writing it down. Luke chapter 19, verse 18. Check this out. After the word is operative... Notice verse 10, they continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Okay, the word is being preached. Now look at verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Book burning, brother. Right? I mean, God convicted them so much. Listen, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Note this. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So it was the word that was affecting change. That, that's what is fueling everything going on. It's the centrality of the preached word. It's it's the mark of a healthy church. And folks, my goal is to labor in the word, to make sure I gain authorial intent, and know I I do my best to make sure I'm preaching thus saith the Lord, and not religious opinions. Okay? Now, I may say things that are opinions. Don't pay them any attention. But when I tell you what the word of God says, you better listen. Right? Because there's a difference in my religious opinions and what this book says. But there's another side. Not, do, not only do I prepare to give it to you, but what about your receptivity to what's being taught? Do you know, you have a responsibility for hearing and receiving the Word of God. And you want to be, I want to be faithfully and accurately preaching the Word, but you need to develop a diet to get it. Now, some of you rascals may have a metabolism a lot different from mine. Right? Some of you can eat one physical meal a week and stay alive. But that's not true for me. I have to eat every two hours. Or I'll be famished, right? 
Some of you have a metabolism uh, that's lacking for the Word. You think that this just one, one Sunday morning or one Sunday morning of Sunday school class of one hour of Bible facts is going to be all you need to eat on that week. I mean, folks, do you realize that the Word of God is more important to you than food you eat? It's, it's essential for growth. There's not a chance of spiritual growth without the Word of God. It says it in the Bible. Desire the pure milk of the Word so that in it you may... You're scared to say it. You'll indict yourself. Grow, right? Desire it so that we will grow. Perhaps you've got a strange metabolism. Maybe you don't want to get fat on the Word. But I've got news for you. It's okay to get fat on the Word. Listen to it. Bring it in. So... Many other things we do in this church are vital, and they're crucial, and they're critical in this church body. None as important and critical as the teaching and preaching of the Word. It's central. It must be central. Do y'all mind? I'm in the neighborhood. I know it's 1130. Can I drop by something? Now look, I want us to understand something. We, we really start at 1030 so we can finish at 1145. It's going to be that way, Okay. It's going to be an hour and ten minutes. I mean, unless you want David to cut some of his songs out, because I'm going to preach 40 minutes, okay? I, I just have to to get it in. I don't chase rabbits, okay? I'm giving you the content, and I have to get done with what God has put on my heart. Is everybody good with that? Yeah, all right. You're good with that. Okay. Praise the Lord. <sighs> We're thinking about content and truth and discernment. Folks, as your pastor, I have to tell you that there are some major theological problems with the shack. You know why I tell you that? Because I love you. Anytime you try to write a theodicy novel and give a story about how the divine trinity functions, you're already done falling and bumped your head. Okay? And then if you give them labels and you dumb it down, from the beginning of that book, God, Papa, is described as one who really thinks everybody's going to be redeemed. Folks, that's universalism. Shot number one. There's a place in the book where Jesus says... That, uh, or the Godhead says, whatever they're, that, they didn't, that God's not going to punish sin. Well, folks, I want to tell you, God punished it on his own son, on Calvary's cross. And every man that doesn't receive Jesus will be punished. So the worst part of the book is universalism. Now, I could say tons about it. If you want to come sit down in my office, I'll show you. But, folks, we need to be real careful. I'm not condemning you. And if you walk by me with the shack in your hand or you go see the movie, I'm not going to bring out the pastor's whip. I'm not going to snatch your book away from you. I'm just telling you, folks, truth is important. And if you read this storyline, and it's the, the man that wrote the book, Paul Young, is teaching a story of theology of his beliefs of God with the story and this narrative and this dialogue. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall off the theological map. The God of the shack is not the God of the Bible. Okay? I just want you to know that. I love you. And you can read the shack all you want to, but it's not Bible. Okay? Whew! I feel good. I was really grieved over having to say that to you. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I want to save your soul. Okay? All right, now, number three, be genuinely committed. Oh, wait a minute. Let's see. Yes. Let's make a commitment that I'm going to do my best to preach and proclaim the word. You do your best for receptivity to hear the word and respond and receive it. Number three, we need to be genuinely committed to the covenant community. Let's quickly look at this. It's in the word fellowship. And what do we usually think about with fellowship? Brother Philip, time to eat some donuts, right? Let's have a meal. 
but the real rendering of koinonia is community. So, once you're saved by grace through faith, you're committed to the life of the church enthusiastically. You're, you're committed to the hearing the word and applying it to your life persistently. Then you're committed to one another, right? There's a community fellowship, and it's so important. And verse 44 and 46 gives us these elements of community life. They, they shared life together under the word. They were a family. They received it with gladness and sincerity of, sincerity of heart. They were breaking the bread and in fellowship together. Now, I hope you realize that you can't be an antisocial person all the time and be a Christian. I mean, people come up to me and say, you know, preacher, I, it's my personality. Who gives two cents about your personality? Oh, it's, I just don't relate well with people. Well, you either need to get saved or get over it, right? I'm serious, folks. To be antisocial, to be turned in individualistically is totally anti-Bible. And I know in America we're like that. We get all we, get all we can, we can all we get, and we sit on the rest, right? And we're so individualistic. But that's not the way the church of God operated. Look, rank individualism will kill the church. You can't have that attitude. We have to be one another centered. And these people were a family. Hey, if there was error, you explain the error. You give the truth of the Word of God. You do it in love to one another. You truly are a family. It was a covenant community. Moving on, number four. Be devoted to, the, to worship. Be devotedly committed to worship the Lord. Aldrich Zwingli of the Reformation said that truth wears a happy face. Right? It does. Why? Because we're engaged with the Lord. The Bible says that a merry heart is a good medicine, but a crushed spirit will dry up your bones. Well, this folk, this church was completely devoted to the king so they would wear a smile. And even though they may go through life's difficulties, they did so with a joyful heart. Why? Because they were worshiping the Lord. Note the inclusion of daily. I mean, we get all bent out of shape if it's one day of the week, right? But they were doing these things daily. Daily coming together, daily worshiping, daily breaking the bread with generous hearts and gladness. If somebody had a need, it was met. And here is informal and formal worship brought together. Here is structured leadership, but yet spontaneity. Uh, here is worship wed together as perfect partners with structure, but also it's free, right? God may do something that's not printed in the bulletin, right? And it, it was spontaneous. This church, Adrian Rogers once said, was not rusted together with traditionalism. They were not wired together by organization, and they were not frozen together by formalism. They were melted together by prayer, praise, and the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a worshiping church. Alexander Begg said, although worship services ought to be dignified, it is not right for worship services to be dull. Would y'all say amen to that? I mean, they were worshiping the Lord. Trumpets sounded, cymbals clanged, other instruments joined in in a great cacophony of praise to our Creator. They worshiped Him. Notice they were praying, they were giving, they were sharing Jesus. By the way, when all these things are in line, we will be an evangelistic disciple-making church. And the Lord added to the church those 
who are being saved. We speak about the Savior. And we see sinners come to the Savior. If we're a Bible-centered church. So my encouragement this morning is to help us to think about it. When it comes to the church, are we going to follow the wisdom of the world? Or are we going to focus on the Word of God? It's a good question. Are we going to strive to be popular or strive to be pure? Will we choose to be theatrical or are we going to be biblical? Will we ignore the topic of sin or will we instruct the people really the truth concerning sin? Are we going to be a culture-driven church or a scriptural-driven church? I'm a firm believer that if we'll catch a vision in the 21st century of what was found in the 1st century then we'll be a God-fearing, believing church. If ever there was a time to go back to the future, it's now. Amen? How are we doing? How are we doing in the principles of what... Look, embryonic stages of the church, first description we get, sold out to the life of the church, committed to the preaching of the Word of God and truth, individually ministering to one another in so many ways, And more than anything else, worshiping the triune God. That's principles that will keep the church enduring. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To God be the glory. God, you're good to us. I know the hour is late in our minds. But Lord, you're not bound by time. And Lord, you can work in such a mighty, mighty way. And God, I pray that the same spirit that was working in Acts chapter 2 operative through the Word, will do that very same thing in this church body this morning. God, we need you to convict our hearts. We need you to speak truth to us. God, I'm going to be held accountable for how I led this congregation. And Father, that's why you impressed it upon my heart to to address situations, whether it's a book or a movie or whatever it is. God, I'm going to be held accountable. I don't want my people, my sheep, to chase any kind of doctrine That's going to be away from your word. I'm responsible. I'm going to give an account as one who watches over this flock. And God, I pray you would protect them. And I pray you would make them Bible-centered, Bible-saturated, so that they know your truth. And so they can take it to this world, the truth concerning the Lord Jesus. Father, speak to us during the invitation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.